Introduction, Chapters 6 through 7 of The Origins of Christianity by Thomas Whitaker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction, The Origins of Christianity. Chapter 6 The Destruction of Jerusalem and Its Consequences. But if we accept some view of this kind, the question still remains for decision. When did the cult first draw to itself a new myth in a concrete form? The answer I propose is that it was not until after the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. That great crisis unloosed ideas which had long been preparing. We know both from Josephus and from Tacitus that prodigies were reported to have taken place before the fall of the temple. A voice louder than human was heard proclaiming the departure of the gods. But few, says Tacitus, interpreted this in the sense of fear. Most were persuaded that it was contained in the ancient scriptures of the priests that at that time the east should wax strong, and that men going forth from Judea should possess the world. Now these hopes were not abandoned by the orthodox Jews themselves till long after. The Gentile proselyte to Judaism was still a familiar figure at Rome in the reign of Domitian, and even later, as we may infer from Juvenal, who, it may be noted, at the beginning of the second century, knows nothing of the Christians. It was not until the total annihilation of the Jewish polity, in consequence of the revolt suppressed by Hadrian, that the religion retired into the all but complete exclusiveness it has ever since maintained. And by that time, the orthodox proselytism, reserving as it did for born Israelites the position of a religious aristocracy, had been superseded by that of the Christians, who had gone forth from among them. Thus it seems probable that, just after the catastrophe of the year 70, those Jews or semi-Jews, who for any reason were discontented with the hierarchy and the rabbis, would show quite exceptional activity. For they too were penetrated with the national hopes, and the accepted leaders of the people had failed. Let a rumor go forth that the Messiah, who was to suffer and then to triumph, had already appeared, and undergone that which was foretold by the prophets. Would not this gain instant credence with many? And here is such basis as may be found for a myth. There was nothing incredible in the assertion that one who had been sent to lead the nation along a new way had been crucified by Pontius Pilate, whose procuratorship was now in the past, and was remembered as a harsh one for the Jews. The name of Jesus, an actual name in Palestine, was destined for the new deliverer as being that of an ancient god transformed into a national leader. Eucharists, partaken of by limited circles, existed among the Jews as elsewhere, and these circles, with their devotion to unofficial mysteries, were likely to retain the most archaic religious ideas. Thus there was already a cult and organization prepared to receive so congenial a new belief.
Enough is known of such confraternities to make it intelligible that extended associations growing out of them should become very powerful. This, indeed, was one ground for suspicion on the part of the Roman government, not now displayed for the first time. A new proselytizing society, if it could not make its innocence of all far-reaching designs very clear, was sure to find itself classed among unlawful collegia. And, as a matter of fact, no sooner did the conception of the Christian church as one great organization begin to exist, then such designs were inseparable from its life. On the ethical side, it was easy to ascribe to the new deliverer a reformed teaching which some among the best minds, reacting against the superfetation of official ritual and casuistry, desired to educe from the ancient books. Thus might appear the first collections of sayings attributed to Jesus. If this was a comparatively early movement, originating in Palestine, then we can explain the difference between the impression made on a modern liberal Jew by the synoptic Jesus and by the Paul of the epistles. The teaching, primarily attributed to the founder, represents a phase of moral reflection that was really in contact with the law and could criticize its shortcomings and those of its expositors with effect. The Pauline writings represent Gentile Christianity, to which the law was an abstraction. For the Pauline groups, the main interest lay in developing the idea of the supernatural Christ in the lines of an incipient theology and soteriology. And this development, as von Manen has shown, was Hellenistic, and was removed at least one stage from the origin of the religion of Jesus. The teaching, so far as it is not disfigured by ecclesiastical accretions, such as the commission to certain persons to forgive sins, and so forth, is that which has conferred on Christianity its attraction for minds, which the dogma leaves unaffected or rouses to revolt. Yet pagan opponents like Celsus were able to prove that, to one who knew the philosophers, it was not fundamentally original. It was not, of course, derived from philosophy. By modern criticism, its derivation from Hebrew sources has been traced. Its notable sayings are, for the most part, to be read word for word in the Old Testament. The exaltation of the poor and oppressed was no new thing, but had long been a distinctive feature of Hebrew literature, so much so that it had modified the connotations of Greek words used in the Septuagint. The Greek classical literature, with its insistence on justice first and foremost, does not dwell so much on the side of conduct which this expresses. Recognitions of it, however, are not wanting, so that the later representatives of the classical spirit could show that kindness to the unfortunate, though in their time, as they admitted, more practiced by Jews and Christians, was nevertheless in their own traditions. 
Any moderns who imagine that the virtue of compassion was invented by Christianity, or even by Hebraism, may be confuted by sayings dating not solely from the cosmopolitan period of Greco-Roman ethics, but from the militant period of the city-state. And here natural feeling is trusted in the last resort. The appeal is not to the authority of a divine person who has commanded men to be humane under the promise of heaven and the threat of hell. The ascetic side of Christianity was hardly at all distinctive till it degenerated into repulsive monkery. Whatever may be thought of the ascetic movement of later antiquity, it was in its origins undoubtedly pagan. Its great representatives were the Neo-Pythagoreans, who included in their ascetic discipline, besides chastity, abstinence from flesh and wine. Their abstinence from flesh had, for one motive, compassionate feeling towards the lower animals. Now this, although not usually carried to the same length, is a part of all modern non-Catholic ethics. But while it may be traced equally in Hebraism and in Hellenism, it gets no special recognition from Christianity. Doth God take care of oxen? asks the apostle of the Gentiles. Around the central figure of the religion, to whom the widened ethical teaching of certain Aramaic-speaking groups may have been first ascribed, there gathered at length all kinds of typical stories of divine teachers. Some of these stories are said to be of Buddhistic origin. What was required of neophytes, however, was not acceptance of the teaching, but belief in the miraculous resurrection of the Lord. There is no vestige of evidence for any early or earliest Christianity that was simply a moral rule of life. The simplest form of faith described in the Christian record is the confession that the Jesus of whose life and death oral accounts were in circulation was the Messiah, the Christ. Few of the Hellenistic converts of Syria or Asia Minor, where Christianity gained its first successes, would have had the competence or the desire to investigate such accounts. If any displayed the inclination, they were told that belief without evidence was a virtue. The story, besides, had close affinity with their own religious ideas, and it had been placed in a time before a convulsion deeply affecting all who, practicing less organized cults, looked with awe on the tremendous claims of Judaism. The Messiah of the Jews, it could now be declared in terms of a typical and worldwide myth, had suffered and risen again from the dead. He would return to reward those who believed, and to punish unbelievers with destruction. Thus the old theocratic dream reappeared. The initiates of the emergent cult had no thought of giving up the expectation of universal dominion bequeathed to them, as they held, by their forefathers, natural or spiritual. Their kingdom was not of this world. 
because, when it came, the world, or the present age, would be destroyed. Their Jerusalem was a new Jerusalem, hence they need not regret of the old. Peaceful and violent theocratic aspirations were mingled, as with their predecessors. By some among them, it was desired that everything should be done by mild persuasion. Others looked forward to plagues and earthquakes and flaming fire. As the Orthodox Jews did not enthusiastically receive the new gospel, or glad tidings, the responsibility for the death of the promised Redeemer began to be cast upon them, and withdrawn as much as possible from the Roman governor. Prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem, and parables prefiguring the rejection of the unbelieving Jews from the promised kingdom, were put in the mouth of Jesus. The new sect turned more and more to the Gentiles. The feast is for all, except those men who were first invited. If any are unwilling, the servants of the kingdom must compel them to come in. Jesus, it was held, had sent forth his mystic twelve apostles, corresponding to the twelve patriarchs and the twelve tribes of Israel. He had commissioned them to teach all nations, and had appointed the ceremonies of his religion, in reality immemorial usages, Jewish and pagan. A story of his betrayal grew up. He had been bought with a price, like the victims of known human sacrifices. A mystery drama came into being, setting forth his crucifixion and resurrection, and the associated events. This is the basis of the extant narrative, as is especially evident in our first two Gospels. Hellenistic ritual and mythology, in their remoter origin themselves, Asiatic, contributed to the syncretism. The mythical development was accompanied or followed by speculations of a more intellectual kind. In about a generation from the fall of the temple, the way had been prepared for the new movement called Paulinism. To understand the exact position, however, we must go back and consider, in its bearing on the future of religion, the process of development undergone by the ancient classical world till it was confronted with Christianity. 7. The Anti-Hellenic Reaction In the West, a new type of civilization had arisen different from that of Asia. Its characteristics were political self-government as opposed to absolutism, humanist as distinguished from theological culture, and, in tendency, the direction of life by ideas attained through a process of unfettered thought, as opposed to its direction under the traditional system of a priestly hierarchy. No hard and fast division between East and West, indeed, has ever existed grounded in these distinctions, but on the whole they describe the fundamental contrast. The Western type was developed with various degrees of purity by the Greek cities, and afterwards by Rome. Its ideal has by all later generations been found in Athens in the 5th century BC. This ideal was not, of course, 
realized without imperfections. The representatives, for example, of popular government and of philosophy did not always understand that their causes were united. The progressive movement, besides, was stopped, so that in many ways the humanity and sense of justice displayed even by not extraordinary minds had no chance of coming to fruition. To this period, the ancients themselves looked back as the humanist ideal. Cicero, at the opening of the fifth book of his De Finibus, already treats it as a sacred antiquity, very much as we do ourselves. From the collapse of the Athenian power at the end of the Great Age, the world has never since wholly recovered. That is to say, if we consider not individual men of genius, nor yet mere expansion, but conceptions of life as realized in political societies without reference to their magnitude. The civilization of Renaissance or modern Europe is on a larger scale, but it still remains, even at the height, deeply entangled in the systems that were imposed by reaction from the East. On a general survey, we perceive that, in the nature of things, a polity of yesterday, surrounded on the one side by complex civilizations reaching back through millennia, and on the other by groups of barbarian tribesmen, could not permeate the whole world with light by a continuous process. The sudden emergence of light was, in fact, owing to a conjuncture of favorable circumstances as well as to the natural genius of a race. The statesmen of later antiquity, when the reversal had begun, perfectly understood that, on the whole, their business was to check a decline. The first Eastern institution to return was absolute monarchy. The second was theocracy. The two were fatally connected, though it was still a question whether the latter should be nominal or should be an active power in the state. The mightiest Julius, the descendant of gods and kings, displayed his usual clear insight when he staked his whole future on being made Pontifex Maximus. United in one person or separated, the kingly and priestly dignities were henceforth necessary to each other. The framework of the republican type remained, indeed, after the victory of the monarchical cause, and it is easy to undervalue its preservation. In reality, it gave the Roman Empire what still distinguished it from the monarchies of the East. Caesarism, in the proper sense of the term, which may be described as a system resting on military loyalty to a quasi-royal family, lasted only from the Battle of Actium to the death of Nero. With Vespasian came a prelude to the recovery of influence by that party in the Senate which, sustained by the Stoic philosophy, had resisted pure absolutism. The reform was retarded for an interval by the tyranny of Domitian, more frightful in its sheer oppressiveness than anything that had gone before. 
but tyrannicide laid the foundation of nearly a century's good government. The emperors of the second century took in hand the task of organizing the imperial system so as to make the monarchy, as Tacitus put it, compatible with liberty. By Marcus Aurelius, Caesarism was expressly repudiated, and his ideal of the monarchy, republican in spirit, was still official in the third century. The Roman Empire, according to the view put forward, was not to be confounded with an Asiatic despotism. The emperor did not rule by arbitrary will, but according to law and for the common good. It was admitted that the rule of a single person had only become necessary through want of sufficient virtue in the multitude. If the republic had been possible, it would have been better that it should be retained. The old basis of civic religion also, it was held, must, as far as possible, be preserved. Suppression of barbarian cults, or their assimilation to the civic type, was to be undertaken by the state in accordance with the ideas of philosophical reformers. Human sacrifices were legally abolished, as they have been by the British government in India. Apart from abuses which it was hoped might gradually be got the better of, each city or country was to continue the practice of its own religion. This, indeed, had been the position of the early Caesars themselves. Augustus promoted religious reaction on a Roman basis, but, like his successors for nearly two centuries after his death, he maintained the old hostility to, quote, foreign superstitions, close quote. Those who directed practical affairs knew all along the terrible power latent in popular religion and the susceptibility of the multitude to waves of fanaticism. Civic religion, with its administration by state functionaries and its aesthetic forms used as a means of beautifying life, was obviously an artificial structure. The true natural religion, as Cardinal Newman perceived and said, is of the barbarian type, and, as he proceeded to show, it is this that contains the root ideas of the Christian religion. From foreign cults at Rome, there were occasions when nothing less was feared than the subversion of the state. The popular appeal in support of the native religion against more exciting mysteries could only be to patriotism. When this atrophied through loss of liberty, the whole battle was lost. At Athens, it is no accident that Demosthenes should try to associate his Macedonizing rival with the invocation of Huis Attis, Attis Huis. The overlordship of King Philip and the introduction of a strange god from Asia were instinctively seen to be parts of the same process. The process was complete when the mob of Antioch acclaimed the Chi and the Kappa against a sovereign who would not allow himself to be called despot. On the other side of the account, it must be remembered that the monarchy of Philip and Alexander 
was the means of introducing Hellenic culture into the Oriental world. And that culture, penetrated by its pervasive force beyond the dominions of Alexander's successors. The kings of Parthia, for example, called themselves officially Phil-Helena. Asia, however, soon grew weary of this. The aggression of the West, ending in the conquests of the Roman Republic, at length stirred up the deep underlying desire to return to its own type. The populations, as has often been observed, were glad to be relieved from the contests of unfamiliar political factions, and to know only Caesar. But rumors such as that which is mentioned by Tacitus, as current during the siege of Jerusalem, reveal a profounder sentiment. The Jews, however, were too isolated in the East itself to fulfill the oracle literally, and to go forth and conquer in the name of resurgent darkness. Besides, the nobler elements in their character did not permit them to evolve the required ethics of submission. Jerusalem was not the cradle of the Catholic Church. The name of Christian was said to have been first heard at Antioch. With this, it is in accordance that one legend makes Peter bishop there before he became bishop of Rome. Now Antioch, while extremely cosmopolitan, was at the same time, as we know from Philostratus, the special aversion of the men of Hellenic culture. It was as typically unhellenic as it was Hellenistic. Around Antioch as a center, the literature of the new religion may have begun early in the second century. Up to then, we may suppose the mythology to have been elaborated by way of oral transmission and modification. About the time of the first writings, the sect had attracted the attention of the Roman authorities. Soon it began to appeal unto Caesar, as the heroes of its legend were to be represented as having done in the past. Keeping out of sight its sacramental and sacrificial base and its hierocratic superstructure, it tried to gain the sympathy of influential men by putting in the forefront its monotheism and the purity of its morals. It claimed to be especially useful in promoting obedience to the magistrates. But always, as Renan has pointed out, its hope was in the emperors personally. The fable that, on a report by Pontius Pilate, relating the recent supernatural events in Judea, Tiberius moved in the Senate that Christ should be received into the Pantheon, and that the assembled senators rejected the motion, had an obvious tendency. The emperor was the natural friend of the Christians. The Senate was their natural enemy. And, indeed, it formed the last rallying ground of the opposition in Italy as the Athenian schools of philosophy did in Greece. The empire of the second century, however, was not prepared to meet these overtures. There is a story that Hadrian once proposed to introduce the worship of Christ, but was dissuaded by an oracle, which pronounced that, 
if he carried out his design, all the other worships would cease. This, of course, is legendary, but it represents the real conjuncture of things. The official recognition of Christianity by the state meant that the rulers were to second the propaganda of an intolerant theocracy. If, among the Eastern worships, Mithraism was more favorably received, that was because it could be assimilated to the other cults of the empire, but it did not threaten to usurp the domain of philosophy. For absolutism, no pagan idea of apotheosis could be of greater service than the Christian doctrine of divine right, put forward in the epistolary and apologetic literature. Indeed, in the Middle Ages, not only the Pope, but the Emperor was called Deus in Teris. The opposition to Christianity, in distinction from the permitted cults, sprang from no self-interest on the part of the emperors who opposed it, but from their Roman patriotism and their training in the free Greek schools. How remote they were from the conception of philosophy itself as a state dogma is shown for example, by the circumstance that Marcus Aurelius, while himself a Stoic, endowed chairs for all the schools of philosophy equally. In what precise manner Christianity was repressed before the accession of Commodus, when the repression was relaxed simultaneously with the acceleration of the drift to absolutism, we do not know since nearly all the information comes to us in a legendary form. What we do know is that it was in motive political, it was not religious persecution. That the Christians underwent no serious persecution till the time of Diocletian has been proved once for all by Gibbon. This persecution was to be the prelude to their triumph under Constantine, who developed further the oriental court etiquette and the formal absolutist administration that had marked the reign of his predecessor. In the meantime, the same anti-Hellenism was manifesting itself by a continued return wave in the remoter eastern world. At the beginning of the third century, the new Persian kingdom had been founded. The kingdom of the Sassanids was a church state, strictly intolerant in principle, successfully persecuting Christianity as well as heresies of native growth. Its substitution for the half-Hellenized kingdom of the Arsacides was only one more evidence of the drift of things. In the same period, the Roman Empire was becoming ever more accessible to Eastern cults, though the position of Christianity was still precarious. What the resistance of the second century had secured was a breathing space for a last effort of independent thought before the new hierarchy entered into possession. But this belongs to a later section. We must now return to the development of Christianity from the end of the first century onward. End of Introduction, Chapters 6-7